What's going on, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. My guest today is a brother who I've been trying to get on the interview for a minute now, but, you know, he's a very, very busy black man out here doing what he's saying, producing quality content, telling our stories. So as they would have it, we're both free today, so we finally get a chance to chop it up. Welcome to everyone. Please, everyone welcome to the line, Mr. Clarence Williams IV. No relation to Clarence Williams III. Trust me, I've already asked him that. So once again, welcome my man, Clarence Williams, to the line. How you doing today, sir? Doing very well, very well. Thank you again for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule, Mr. Busy Filmmaker, to talk to me. So this is my blessing and my opportunity to talk to you before you, you know, you make that Oscar speech one day. I appreciate that. So first up, what three films play the biggest part in your decision to pursue a film career? That is a that's a great question. So, you know, of course, I'm sure you get this a lot. You know, it's always hard to ask the filmmakers, you know, what are to single out, you know, one, two, or three films that have made an impact on them when, you know, could be hundreds or, you know, thousands of movies that, that have inspired them. But for me, the the top films, I would say definitely, well, the number one for me is Do the Right Thing. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Um, well, for one, that movie always spoke to me because, I think it's a very honest and realistic depiction of uh, race relations, racism, prejudices. And I think the the brilliance of that movie comes from the fact that not one person is right or wrong. Like Spike is not saying, you know, all the black people in this are right, all the white people are wrong, or vice versa, the white people are right, black people are wrong. These are intricate, complex characters who are flawed. So, you know, there's some characters you, you start out liking and you end up disliking them by the end and vice versa. So I think, and it's something that you can watch over and over again. Um, but that for me definitely left a mark on me because one, it's character driven. And a lot of my work is, is very character driven. Do the right thing. Isn't necessarily like about a plot. If someone were to ask you what it's about, you can't really say the plot, but you can say the story, which is, you know, it's the hottest day in the summer in Brooklyn and you see kind of how, race tensions um, erupt. So for me, that was always a movie that I think I saw it when I was 10 for the first time, and then ever since it's become like my my number one favorite film. And every time I watch it, I, I see something different. So that's one. That's uh, one movie that has really spoken to me. Another one, I would have to say Baby Boy, uh, John Singleton's Baby Boy, because um, Joe John Singleton, he's another one of my favorite filmmakers, um, right up there with, right. with Mike Lee. I think, for me, once again, Baby Boy is not really plot-driven. It's more of a character study on an imperfect, uh, imperfect black man kind of trying to survive and live in uh, South Central. So I think, now me personally, I'm not from South Central. I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally, but I can, I can connect and relate to that movie because I, you know, I know what it's like to be kind of young, trying to make a name for yourself, trying to do stuff. And once again, this is a film where uh, Jody, uh, the main character, he's not... He really isn't likable. A lot of stuff he does, you know, he, has, he, he cheats on his, his girlfriend. He cheats her. You know, he doesn't treat her the best. He's a mama's boy. So there's a lot of different things um, about his character that aren't likable, but he, he still has charisma. He still has a, a, something about his personality makes you root for him. And I think that, you know, that's a credit to John Singleton's screenplay because, you know, 
this is somebody you, you necessarily wouldn't want to root for, but you care about him and you, you want to see him grow and become the man um, that he needs to be. So that's another one. I, a lot of my films are very uh, character-driven, and I think I'm, I always lean more towards films that are character-driven because at the end of the day, when you watch a movie, it's not really the plot that you remember, but it's the characters. And a lot of times, they're also often the dialogue. So that's why a lot of, a lot of stuff I do is, is um, driven by dialogue, driven by characterizations. Uh, let me see. What's another one? So I guess the, the third one that has left a, a mark on me, I'd have to say, is Chasing Amy, uh, Kevin Smith's film Chasing Amy. Because uh, Kevin Smith, once again, he's, he's up there on my, on my list of uh, favorite filmmakers. I think what resonated with me um, when it came to Chasing Amy is it's a, a realistic depiction of a relationship. So you kind of watch it um, blossom, starts off um, as a friendship between the, the two protagonists, then it turns into something else. And, of course, it's complicated because the, uh, the love, the Ben Affleck's character holding his love interest Alyssa is a lesbian, so it's kind of one of those, you know, forbidden romances. It's not something you think would happen, that they would get together, but they do. And then um, over the course of the film, you know, I won't, won't give anything away to those that haven't seen it, but something happens and it causes a, a big rift in the relationship. And I think um, that's very relatable because I think it's a film about insecurities in relationships, um, feeling not feeling adequate enough with your partner and how that can kind of um, collapse your Collapse the Union. So that's another film that's always um, connected with me and, and spoken to me. And, you know, in my own personal work, also the genres of those, of those three films, they're, they're uh, dra- dramatic, romantic, also uh, comedic at times. Those are the genres that I was, I'm, I've always been drawn to. I like dramas, I like comedies, and I like romances. So sometimes I'll never really make a straight comedy or a straight drama or a straight romance because it'll always have little sprinklings of another genre in there. So maybe it'll be a little humorous or a little, uh, a little serious and a little romantic. So those are, those are the three in a nutshell, the films that have really, uh, really spoken to me. Great choice. So just to um, counter a little bit, yeah, Do the Right Thing is definitely required viewing for everyone. I kind of have a similar story that you have. I can recall being um, – Maybe nine, first time I saw do the right thing, and I remember my stepfather at the time had a come by and he rented it, and you know I'm sitting there like you know I'm nine years old. I mean I, I kind of have a love for film, but you know at nine I wasn't able to fully fully process what was going on just yet. So I'm like you know man I want to go outside. You know can I leave? It's boring. He's like no sit here. You're gonna watch this. You need to see this. And the moment. Radio Raheem and Saul get into it from there, you know, it goes from zero to 100. I'm just sitting there in shock at what I just witnessed on screen. And to this day, when I go back and revisit it, which is often, I haven't shown it to my son, who's 11, start to finish yet. I've just shown him the Radio Raheem scene, the scene from the moment, you know, they're arguing to this moment the cops, you know, murder Radio Raheem, he's just like, right. you know, why'd they kill him? And I'm like, well, you know, because, son, it's just evil people in the world. And I even take it to the point where um, Mookie throws a trash can, and, you know, he asks, like, well, why do you throw the trash can? Well, you know, son, it's one of two things. Either he did it because he was frustrated, 
or he didn't save salt. It's one of those debates you got to ask Spike, and Spike's probably going to always give you a different answer because exactly, it's exactly. But um, Baby Boy, I saw that when I was 20, and I was headed to college, you know, for the first time. And, it, you know, you can probably attest to this, that Baby Boy gets such a bad rap, but it's actually such yeah. a very well-made film. And the stuff that he was talking about in Baby Boy was so true to life, and it was going exactly. on worldwide in so many you know, ethnic backgrounds, whether you're black, white, Asian, Korean, or whatever, whatever you want to say, we've all experienced something in Baby Boy because Jody, Jody was a trash individual, plain and simple. Exactly. He was, exactly. But he had to grow up, though. At the end of the day, he, he had to grow up. And the entire scene where he's, you know, talking to Melvin, and he's just going off at the mouth like, yeah, you know, get get up out of my house my house, yada, 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 and Melvin's just chilling, but then he choke grabs him and everything. That's <laughs> yeah. the on the military to where, you know, you're in the air, you know, I'm in the Air Force, and I can remember being in basic training, and he knows kids that are like six foot two, you know, all stocky and everything, thinking they're the shit, and, you know, you have a T.I., you know, down talking, you trying to break you, and then T.I.'s like, all right, you want to see what's up? You want to see who's a better man? So the T.I. will go home there, take his head off, you know, and be ready to go. Now, granted, like, you know, they, they don't put hands on you, but it's right. just the fact that I guess you want to look at it as you really don't step to a man unless you're prepared to do something. Exactly. And then with Chasing Amy, with Chasing Amy um, totally agree. You could totally take away Alyssa being a lesbian and still have the same exact movie. You could have just had it where Alyssa was um, – I guess maybe sexually confident with men, mm-hmm. and you still mm-hmm. have the same. But it's it's Mitch's dialogue that makes that movie, you know, work. Because I mean, you know, we've all been there to where we're putting the friend zone by somebody, and you're just exactly. begging this chick to get with you, and it's like nothing you can do seems to be working. So yeah, shout out to Kevin Smith, shout out to Spike Lee, and Rest in Paradise, the late, great John Singleton. We we suffered a huge film loss when Singleton passed away last year. It still hurts, and I know for me, I don't even think we got the best of John Singleton, you know, before he departed. Exactly. Exactly. That's actually one, because if you think about it, he only made a handful of films that he actually wrote. So I think... I think he was at his most prolific in terms of his own written content in the 90s. But after that, I think Baby Boy was like the last, the last film he wrote. So I, I definitely would have loved to see more feature films from him. I would have loved it. Yeah, and just knowing folks in his circle and, um, you know, people that personally knew him, the stuff he was doing, like when he did um, Abduction with Taylor Lautner, he did that because he thought, you know, Lautner was hot and, you know, it would be a hit. And he'd be able to kind of do his passion projects more freely. But, you know, exactly. sadly, he had to go the TV route. But, um, yeah, the stuff, the stuff that Singleton was doing with Hustle and Flow, and that's the vibe that he was going for where he wanted to eventually get to was just doing independent stuff and maybe on occasion doing like a popcorn flick or something mainstream. But he really was right. trying get to that be money. Um, an independent filmmaker. All right, so who's your biggest influence from a writer's standpoint 
in terms of dialogue? Just give me one influence from a writer's standpoint. From a writer's standpoint, well, I mean, of course, it it, it definitely is those uh, those those three filmmakers I mentioned before. But yes, but I think number one, I probably do have to go back to to Kevin Smith because one because I feel like his his dialogue is relatable. Like a lot of his movies, it's about things that a lot of people, not just one race, can relate to. Like for example, Clerks. It's kind of about, you know, just, just hanging out with your friend, kind of slacking off, talking about life, talking about love, and you can relate to that. Same thing with mall rats. You kind of, you know, everyone is, you know, about going to the mall or going someplace with your friends, just kind of loitering, not really doing much, but just talking, spending time together, and kind of building a bond. And then once again, chasing Amy, because there are a lot of scenes with um, Holden and the Banky character, uh, Jason Lee's character. You know, this, it's, it was a, very much a bromance film. So I think if you, and of course, Jay and Silent Bob is like the, they have like the ultimate bromance. So I definitely, Kevin Smith is a writer that I've always kind of, well, when I was, when I was younger, I had a phase of just literally not even being original, just copying, just kind of like literally whatever he wrote, I would just try to write that because I thought it was so good. But then from that, I, you know, I found my own voice and, and my own characters, but he, he's definitely, Kevin Smith is definitely someone who has had a, um, a major impact on my writing. Yeah, shout out to Kevin Smith, one of the greats. Yes, sir. Division Film School. I actually, so I went to, um, when I was younger, in high school, I went to like a film academy, um, the NYFA New York Film Academy. Didn't, to be honest, didn't really learn a whole lot there, but it was a good, um, it was a good opportunity to kind of work with actors and just get to make movies because that's, you know, I've, I've been loving, I've loved making films, um, since I was 10 years old. So it was a good opportunity to just kind of be free and film stuff, but can't really say I learned much. Um, I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon University, which is not a, um, it's, it's like a top drama school, but it's not a film school. So I didn't actually, I never had full um, film training, but I did go to a theater school, which was Carnegie Mellon. And I think I, I benefited from that more than going to film school because they taught me how to work with actors we had to, um, all the directing majors had to take acting classes, so they put us in the shoes of actors so we could empathize. And then, of course, we had directing classes where it was more about um, articulating your vision to a team. So, of course, they didn't, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't trained in the film sense of, like, camera angles and different lighting names and, you know, basically the film lingo. I, I didn't really have a lot of experience with that, per se, but I did... Um, I, I like to think I am I am um, pretty pretty good at at talking and communicating with actors and um, you know pulling performances out of them and I think I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had um, hadn't gone to a drama school. So shout out to to Carnegie Mellon. Let's quickly dive into these projects and the motivation behind a few of my favorites. Up first is not how it goes. Not How It Goes. So actually, Not How It Goes was actually, um, I co-created that with my wife. So shout out to my wife, Christina. She's actually, um, she's been like a, a co-producer on a lot of my projects. She's also a writer. Um, so it would, and this is actually her idea. So it was, the whole series is about um, two millennials who become friends with benefits, and you see kind of um, the struggles 
and the challenges that arise from, you know, a friends with benefits situation. Um, so this was actually her idea originally. It was, it was um, so she kind of came up to, came up with this idea of, you know, why don't we do something about being a friends with benefits? Because, um, you know, everyone at one point or another has had either a, simil- a situation like that or something similar or they thought about doing something like that. So it's a very relatable, um, a very relatable theme. So, you know, we kind of brainstormed. We came up with some characters. It initially um, was, started off as a feature film. So we, we co-wrote this feature film together called Not How It Goes and had a lot of the same characters that were in the web series. But, of course, as you, you know, I'm sure you know, it's always hard to get a film made. So we kind of had a, long, a hard time um, getting anyone to bite and, you know, give us money to make it. So we, a couple years later, we put the script, put the script down. Maybe like two, two years later, we were like, let's, you know, let's revisit this. You know, we had that, that, uh, that film itch. I'm sure you know about that where you just have to get this story made or have to get, you know, the story out. So from there, we decided to condense it, condense the characters, condense the, whole, the world, and we wrote it um, – as a as a you know a five five to ten minute um, web series, so she wrote it's eight episodes. Um, she wrote three, I wrote three, and then we co-wrote two. And um, she directed one of the episodes, and I directed the rest. I did um, the editing. I'm also an editor, so I edit all my all my films and things like that. Um, so and we shot everything in three days. It's uh, eight episodes, I believe. The, the, whole, the full season is um, sixty eight minutes. So we uh, shot all that in three days. You know, I wouldn't recommend filming like that because it was very stressful and uh, exhausting, but we were able to get it done. And um, a lot of it actually has been um, pretty well received, which we're both very excited about because um, we wanted to make something with an all-black cast, but we wanted it to feature themes that are universal because I feel like a lot of times when you watch movies, Hollywood's idea of the norm or universal is like a white person. So, you, you know, you see a movie with a white actor and he's supposed to represent everybody. But I feel like it shouldn't just be white actors. I think you can have an Asian lead that everyone can relate to, a black lead everyone can relate to, a Hispanic lead that everyone can relate to. So we wanted to tell a universal story with, um, with people of color. So it was definitely a very, very uh, fun experience for us. Stressful, of course, but fun. And um, it, it's very interesting to kind of see people. We get met because we have an Instagram page. Um, to anyone interested, it's at not how it goes. So um, we have like little clips, uh, promotional photos, things like that. But it's been a very fun experience for us because um, we've been getting like messages from people, you know, from around the world, just like, hey, we saw the web series, we love it. When you know what you know what's next. So we're we're definitely very uh, very excited and and proud of uh, of not how it goes. Stay home. Up next. So that actually, that was a film that I didn't, um, I didn't direct that, but I wrote it. So I was, um, it's actually directed by um, a colleague of mine. He's a filmmaker um, based on the East Coast. So he's always, um, I've actually been in touch with him for a few years now. And um, he's, he's someone that enjoys my writing. And he isn't um, a writer himself, but he, you know, comes up with stories and ideas and stuff. And um, we've worked together. We did another short um, together called Lovely Day. That's um, that's also available on YouTube. I wrote that one, and he um, he directed it. But with Stay Home, we wanted to do something that was um, influenced, inspired by you know this this very 
uh, devastating and, and crazy uh, coronavirus pandemic. So um, it initially started off as something um, a bit more humorous, but I actually decided to go back and change it. And um, I, I just kind of wrote about a young man who's a struggling writer and his girlfriend who believes in him but uh, doesn't want him to quit his job. Because I feel like a lot of us artists, we can relate to, you know, a lot of artists that work nine to fives can relate to this idea of, you know, there's never enough time in the day. You know, I want to write my scripts. I want to, I want to focus on film, but I don't have time because I have this nine to five job and I have, you know, I have a relationship and I have these things, these other um, commitments that I have. So it's like, when can I get this work done? But um, the protagonist, is his girlfriend, Violet, she's very, she's honest. And she tells him, you know, if you really love writing, you'll find a way to write. It doesn't matter. You know, you can't blame anything else. If you're a writer, you write. So I think a lot of people can relate to that dynamic of, um, you know, loving somebody and wanting the best for them. So that's – and I wanted to kind of speak to audiences more by, by adding a little, something a little more relatable in this story about the, uh, the coronavirus. So um, it was initially an idea that the, uh, that the filmmaker pitched to me about, like, doing something based on uh, – you know, the quarantine and Corona. So from there I wrote it out. I, um, he brought in an actor that he knew, and then I contacted a friend of mine from Carnegie Mellon who was an actress that I've worked with on numerous occasions. So, you know, it all came together. And um, that's another, um, another film, actually. We were not expecting um, the response that we got. We thought maybe a few people would be like, oh, okay, this was, you know, this is a nice film. But, you know, some people were saying it, it, uh, it touched them, it made them cry, it, it really left an impact on them. And, you know, as a filmmaker, that's always your dream. Because if you can create something that can speak to somebody or create something that can um, create a, a strong emotional response from somebody, it is always great. So I'm definitely, uh, that's another one I'm, I'm actually very happy, happy with and excited to, uh, to get out to the world. Stay home. And last but not least, your most recent project, I Was Born a Good Girl. So I Was Born a Good Girl is actually, that is, uh, it's based on a novel called She Was Born a Good Girl. So the, um, the writer of that, his name is Garfield White. He is um, an author based in Jamaica. So he's another person that I've been in contact with uh, for a few years now. He actually hired me um, when I first moved out to L.A. to adapt um, another book of his into a screenplay. So he was someone that um, enjoyed my writing and, and wanted to work with me. And he also found that I was a filmmaker. So he was like, oh, okay, so you direct. And um, so from there, you know, we've had a rapport over the years. So he reached, um, he reached out to me because he was interested in turning um, – so the original story was She Was Born a Good Girl. He was interested in turning that into a, um, into a short. So in a nutshell, um, she, she Was Born a Good Girl is, is basically a story about, you know, a young independent woman who attends this um, all-girl boarding school. And, you know, she's very independent, very studious. She's not really thinking about boys, but a lot of people around her, her, her friends and, you know, her peers, they're all boy crazy. So she's kind of more, you know, like girls, relax. You don't need a guy to make you happy, uh, which, I, which I think is a very um, positive and strong message. So from there, I, um, I, I changed the name of the film to um, I Was Born a Good Girl instead of She Was Born a Good Girl. And... Um, I actually have to give, uh, give a shout-out to um, Mr. Garfield because he gave me free range. Like, I was able to pretty much change all the dialogue. Um, the character names and, the, you know, the storyline are still the same, but, like, the words 
that the characters speak is all me. He, you know, and that's rare because some authors are like, you know, keep my words, don't do this. But he was, he trusted me, and he's like, I, I believe you can, um, you know, create a, a believable, well-written story, so you can, you know, do what you, do what you want with it. So I was able to write it all myself. Um, cat do the casting. My wife actually was a, um, she helped with the the casting and producing of this film, so she was a big part of um, in helping me get this made. And we shot it all one day. We actually shot this right before the lockdown started. Um, so we shot this in March, early March, before, you know, everything shut down. And um, this, that, this, once again, was another project. People, um, they saw the comedy in it. A lot of people were like, this should be a TV series or this should be a feature. So this short was actually a proof of concept because um, we would like to either turn this into a feature or a TV series, whatever um, is, is, is possible. So we were kind of, I created this to kind of hopefully potentially entice people who may um, be interested in wanting to see this on a, on a bigger scale, bigger screen. So that was kind of how, um, how I Was Born Good Girl came about. Dope. Like I said, y'all, this is a busy cat, man. Every time I'm on Facebook, it seems like every day my brother's posting something new. So shout out <laughs> to you, man, for, for staying busy and following your dreams. So as you know, I first became aware of your work when you shared your short, His Pain, which featured Mitchell Edwards, who portrays Cameron on All American. Yeah. How did you secure Edwards for the for the role in His Pain? So actually, uh, so I went to uh, Mitchell. I call him Mitch. I actually went to college with Mitch. We both went to Carnegie Mellon together. So we've been you know we've been friends since uh, the college days. He's acted in my. He's acted in a few films I made in college, you know, some, my, some of my early work, the stuff that will never be seen by the public. But um, so he's been around for, for a while. He's so been down to work with me and, and you know, support and be a, part of my, be a part of my projects. So this was just one of those things where I just, um, I hit him up. I was like, hey, you know, would you like to, would you, like to you know, do this little short? It's just, it'll just be two days of work. Um, and he was like, yeah, no doubt. And um, Mitchell actually, Mitch was also in um, my one of my third feature film that I, I wrote and directed called My Friend Tucker. So he was the lead in that, and he actually um, he actually won a, the best acting award at the um, Golden State Film Festival, which was right here in uh, in uh, Santa Monica. So he um, so it was it was not hard to get him involved. He's actually one of those people who um, he's always been down to to be a part of projects even when he's busy or, or doing, you know, other stuff, shooting for Netflix, shooting for, you know, a lot of big-time productions. He's been um, – he's always been pretty good about, you know, helping a friend out and, and working with me. So it was, you know, it was very it was very easy process to get him um, get him involved. And um, His Pain, once again, was another film that um, people, I think, connected with because it's about domestic violence, but the – it's from the point of view of the man. So the man is the one that's being abused and, and put down by his wife. And um, I think that's something that happens a lot. You know, maybe people don't want to admit to it, but it does happen. It is a very serious issue. So I wanted to, you know, shed light on on that. So, I, I you know, I definitely, as you mentioned, I, I try to stay busy. You know, during this quarantine, I've been pumping out scripts, you know, just, just gearing up for, you know, when all this is over or not we can – get started again on um, on more projects so i'm just very I'm, I'm just very grateful excited to be you know just to be a filmmaker i think this is a a beautiful medium and you have the potential to really um to really inspire and and motivate people 
So it's my dream to just be a filmmaker that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, a filmmaker can say, oh, I want, you know, I watched his Clarence Williams, the fourth film, and, and it made me want to be a filmmaker. Just the way, like, the same way that I, you know, watched Spike or Tarantino, Kevin Smith, John Singleton, and, you know, I, I left their films thinking, I want to do that. I want to, I want to make films. You know that I'm a huge fan of biopics, so I have to ask, who are your top three hip-hop acts you feel most deserve a biopic? Oh, well, that's, that's, that's easy. Number one is Big L. That Big L is one of my favorite rappers of all time. He's in my top five. Not a lot of people know about him. The only people that know about him are like the real, the real hip-hop heads, but he was around in the 90s. Super young. He was, he was like 20 or 21 when he first got signed. Um, he dropped only dropped one album while he was alive, but a bunch of um, albums were released after he died. But he, he, it's just I just even just talking about him just gets me all amped up because he's so he's such a lyricist. His, his lines are are incredible, and he's and he's versatile. Like he had the songs that just the hardcore stuff. He had the smooth stuff, the the music with a message. He had, you know, songs that told you to stay away from the street life. So, and unfortunately, his life was cut short um, in 99. He was only, I believe he was only 24. He was either, either, I think he was 24 years old, murdered in cold blood. They still, to this day, haven't solved it, found his killer. But his whole story, his rise, his, um, everything he's been through, he's worked with a lot of the greats, like Fat Joe and... He was cool with Big Pun and, you know, just a lot of Lord Finesse, just a lot of people in that cool, time Jay. period. To this, yeah, exactly. They still they still talk to him. Nas, Nas was influenced by him. So Eminem is a bit, was influenced by him. So he's, he, he doesn't, he didn't get the just do that he deserved, but um, I would, I would love to make a movie about him. Just so not even just, I mean, I would do it just for a selfish reason of me as a fan, just wanting to see his story on the big screen. So definitely Big L. Um, another one, Big Pun. Big Pun, uh, the first Latin rapper to go platinum. He, honestly, I think, you know, this may upset some people, but, you know, as much as I love Biggie and I love Tupac, Big L and, and, and Big Pun were better rappers. So, and I feel like not a lot of people realize this. So Big Pun is another one. Like, his, his, his wordplay, everything is just crazy. And his life, too. Like, he's somebody that, I, I think he was almost like 700 pounds when he died. He died of a heart attack. So he struggled with weight and his weight and eating. You know, he, he had an um, eating disorder. He would just eat when he was depressed, eat when he wasn't happy, eat when he was happy, eat when he was sad. It was just, it was crazy. So I feel like that is a, a very interesting character to explore is like depression, how it gets to that point where you have to eat to make yourself feel better. And it's like nothing can satisfy that hunger. So I, I feel like once again, his life too it, it, um, would make a great movie. Um, and then my last one, this last one is actually a, it's a toss up between Nas and DMX because I feel like Nas, he was somebody once again, a you, you, came in and just blew people away at such a young age. And to this day, like his, you know, Illmatic and it was written and all his stuff from the nineties is just, it's just, it, it's a lot of people cannot really touch it. A lot of people can't come close to, to what he did. So I'm I'm a big '90s fan. If it wasn't clear, I'm I'm a big '90s rap rap head. So I love '90s artists. Uh, same thing with DMX. I feel like DMX was very prolific. 
he he made a huge impact on rap culture and his story too, like coming from um, a rough upbringing. Like I would love to see, I would love to you know do something about his life as well. So those are like the top, my top uh, top rappers. But actually, I'm, I'm curious, yeah, I'm not- who, who would you who would you do a do biopics on? I mean, I got so many men. You know, um, I'm more I'm deeper into the R&B thing, but um, you yeah. know, I always say high five. Just you know, interviewing them and knowing knowing Tony's story. Uh, I think the big thing, like you know, when we're in the group and we kind of go back and forth with people. The thing with biopics is everyone has a story, and I think right. too often we we focus on just the meat and the popularity, and we really don't focus on how they got to where they got to or why they got to where they got to. And to piggyback off what you were saying about Big L, um, yeah, Big L has a perfect story to tell. But I think the only thing with Big L's might be the whole Jay-Z connection because of how Jay, oh, yeah. Jay-Z is now. Because the reason why Jay wasn't in Notorious was because Jay felt like, you know, I'm not going to take away from, you know, Chris's story because, you know, this is Biggie's story. And if you guys try to put me in there, even though I was part of the story, it's going to overshadow Big's story. So I can't really be part of that whole thing. Now, that being said, though, on the flip side, you could easily <clears throat> you could easily throw Jay-Z in there and then maybe have, like, possibly a Netflix series about that whole yeah, movement. Yeah. You know, first season you focus on Big L season one ends with Big L's passing away, and then season two focuses on Jay becoming where he is now. Because one thing that you'll find in my interviews, whenever I interview an R&B artist, Jay's been around so long, and so many cats forget, you know, before he became the Jay-Z we know now, Jay-Z was like a a young fabulous with these remixes to R&B tracks. I mean, he worked Mm -hmm, with everybody, mm -hmm. like, when I brought up the high, when I interviewed High Five, and I brought up, you know, there's someone, and they're like, you know about that? I'm like, yeah, of course, man, I'm a fan. Of course, I know you guys did a song with Jay Z before he became Jay Z. That's, you know, that's common music head knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, R and B though, like that's, that's like my big thing. So definitely High Five. Um, even though, even though they already had a story, I do think that Ralph Tresvant has his own story that can be told. Just what he went through you know, not having the success that he deserved, the pressure of being a front man. BBD has a story, you know, again, that's when you can tell who really knows music and who really doesn't know music and follow stuff per se because BBD went through a whole thing with Ricky's drug addiction, Mike almost dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tons of story out there. You just have to want to tell it. And people just, like I said, people think that it's all about the clips and the glamour, and it's not the case. Once again, to go back to Janet Jackson, how we've been talking in the group back and forth, Janet has a story because people forget that Janet really didn't blow up until 86. Just because her mm-hmm. last name was Jackson doesn't mean that she was going to be successful. And she had to fight to get to where she was. She had to fight to get to where she eventually became. So, therefore, you have the classic story of an underdog. That's, that's the movie right there. You don't necessarily got to focus on, you know, where she is now. But just tell that story of her being on Good Times, different strokes. Good Times, right. She was Penny. Yeah, yeah. Making those bullshit-ass, those first two albums that were some bullshit, because they were, let's be honest, and then breaking away <laughs> from Joe 
and becoming her own person, and then you, you end it with control. I mean, you end it with, with that Rhythm Nation, her first tour. It's an underdog story that ends in success. Perfect crowd-pleasing entertainment. And you can tell that story in like two and a half hours. Yeah, I'll make crazy money because Janet, Janet is an icon. Oh, actually, you just reminded me, though, another an R&B biopic that I would really like to see, H-Town. Oh, yeah. Because they, they have that whole story too. with Dino dying so young, like all that stuff is just getting robbed by the label. I think their story would be, yeah. would be great. And people, don't, uh, and people don't really take that stuff into consideration. And, again, it goes back to us as a community not fully doing research because Dino can blow – I mean, rest in peace, you know, Dino could blow. He could really sing his ass off, no doubt. Yeah. But his yeah. brother can sing too. And yeah. you have to, you know, live with that comparison and try to compare, you know, being compared to your brother and see legacy on except for anybody to follow. So once yeah, again, yeah. it's a story of overcoming adversity that a skilled writer can make it work. So that's on, it's on writers and filmmakers to make that story succeed. But, you know, that's my little tangent on that, though. So, you know, like, so we can move on. I agree completely. So given the chance to rewrite the ending of any film, what would you pick and how would you change it? Hmm. That is actually a very – that's a very good question. So I, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers. One, this is not – I wouldn't rewrite this ending, but this is just an ending that I would have liked to see. I would I would have loved to see the original Juice ending, so because I was you know I was watching Juice is another one of my favorite films, but Ernest Dickerson the I'm, I'm sure you know this already, but the original ending was not Bishop accidentally falling to his death. He was like, nah, I'm not going to jail, and he kills himself. I think that ending would have been so powerful, and it would have been in line with the Bishop character. Like he you know he wanted power, he didn't want to have to go to jail again like his dad. Him committing suicide would have just been like, oh dang, like super dark but also that would have left a bigger impact so i would just i just had to get that out there because i would have really loved if they i just wish they had been able to keep that ending but for me an ending i would have changed okay so this one this is I, i would only change this just because as a fan i didn't want this to happen but menace to society i think i would have i would have made that ending a little different i would have had I mean, it would have been, you know, might have been a little cheesy, but I would have had Kane survive just because that's, I mean, it's, it kind of goes in line with Baby Boy. Kane is another character that you really shouldn't like. You know, he's a drug dealer. He's a criminal. He's, you know, he's violent, like all these things. But it's just I wanted him to make it so bad. So when he, when, you know, he, and he was finally getting his life together, he was finally going to leave. So I might have I might, I might have ended that a little differently. I might have had him maybe be seriously injured and almost die, but then that whole experience would have been an eye-opener for him and he would have been able to move on and then still move with, um, with Ronnie and her son. So, I mean, of course, it might have been, you know, would have, some people probably would have been like, oh, that's corny and stuff, but I feel like sometimes you've got to please the audience. Like, sometimes there are those endings, it's like, you know, everyone wants these people to be together or everybody wants this character to do that. Sometimes I think it's okay to give in and, and you know, give, give the ending that everyone wants. Because for me, that, that ending, to this day, it still gets me. I'm like, dang, why, Kane, why? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to piggyback real quick. And cause I agree with you. With Juice, I think it would have been the perfect coda to highlight mental illness in the black community. Yes. 
because if you remember when we talked about um, Juice, you know, just ad nauseum with fellow filmmakers, we were saying how um, the entire thing was Bishop was never right. And it goes back to the moment he got that gun in his hand, that's what kind of awakened his crazy side was that rush, that power. So he was already gone. And, you know, I'm not condoning what he did, but it was obviously very clear that he had some mental illness issues you know, going on, that that ending could have brought up, you know, topics a long time ago about mental illness and, you know, what to, how it affects the black community. And for Menace, I agree, too. I mean, I know why they did it, because they wanted to strip away a character the audience grew to love, but how it would have flipped it, though, was the entire time Kane is giving voiceovers in the movie, right? Right. So at the end, you know, when it fades to black, you do one more cutaway, and you show Kane in the hospital, with everybody around him, and he's been telling the story the entire time from his hospital, his hospital bed. Oh, I actually, I like that. That's nice. No, I can see that. I try. I can see that. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. Well, uh, but actually, real quick, just another piggyback, because what you said about Juice, that's actually very true, because a lot of people just think it's just, you know, he's a villain, he's a villain, but nobody really digs deeper. There's a um, because you know there was that whole little subplot. It's not really explored too much, but you know with Bishop, his dad, his dad was a you know a prison yard you know prostitute essentially, and that's you know as a man being you know emasculated like that by other men, it's it's very that there's like a stigma with that. So I think Bishop was like, no, I'm not going out like my dad. I'm not, I can't do this. And so it's like this, and that's another issue too in a black community is like being masculine. You got to be hard all the time as a black man, and then can't be soft. You can't be sensitive. So there, he's fighting that as well as this, you know, this yearning for, for power. And that's why he was able to just turn on his, his day ones. Like, that always, that always scared me about the movie was, like, he grew up with these guys. These are his best friends, so he just did not care at all. And that being drunk with power. Exactly. You, you get a call from Spike Lee saying that he's directing the Blade reboot for Marvel and wants you to serve as his editor. While talking to Spike, Tyler Perry emails you and says that he wants to buy the rights to your short, Love is Growing Up, to turn into a feature film starring Jaden Smith and Megan Thee Stallion. Who are you going to work with? <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very specific one. That's, <laughs> uh, that's actually... You know what? The, dang, actually, you're going to make me think. Hmm. I think I might just have to, as much as, you know, Spike is, is you know, is, is the GOAT, and, you know, he's one of, it would be amazing to, to sit in on him, but I, I think I would go with Tyler Perry, only because he'd be actually taking one of my stories and, um, and turning it into something, so I, I would be the writer, because I, I approach filmmaking, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer first, so, like, I, yes, I direct, I edit, I do other things, but writing is my number one, so... I might, you know, I might actually end up letting Tyler. I'd be, of course, I'd be a little weary. I'm like, you know, I'm wondering, like, I hope this turns out okay. Like, what's, you know, what's going to happen? But I think I will go that route. Who was one actor you would love to pitch your dream project to? Denzel Washington. Denzel is number one. one no, he's another goat, and his his career is just versatile. He, I think, him. Will Smith and um, well, mostly just him and Will Smith. They're like one of those. There's two black actors that 
people don't see race with them. People just look at them as actors. They play characters that any race could play. Like, I, I think that's, that's amazing. To be in the Hollywood system and to be an actor of color and you're not seen as an actor of color, that's the dream. So Denzel, yeah, Denzel is an icon. I would love the opportunity to write something that he would, would star in. That, yeah, that, that, that's the dream. Yeah, um, I do this real quick. Cause, you know, I, I know both press for time, but between um, Denzel and Will, let me get your opinion. I've always told people when we kind of debate that um, the thing about Denzel and Will, like you know, love them both, I heart them both. But to me, Denzel personifies acting, while Will, on the other hand, is a movie star, and there's a difference in the two. And the difference is Denzel is an actor, you know, he'll get up on stage, he'll do risk and all that, but Will's going to play stuff commercial because he has a natural, you know, everyman, charming type of pill that can appeal to just anybody. So um, that's why I always give Denzel a bit more of the edge only because, you know, I've seen him on stage doing King Lear, going all the way back to St. Elsewhere. Like he's just, he, he personifies acting. You know, there's a difference between being a movie star and being a, Actor, it's almost like with um, a Daniel Day Lewis and a Tom Cruise. Lewis is an actor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise is a movie star, so like you know, it's not it's not a knock on anybody. It's just like saying somebody's an entertainer, somebody's a rapper. There's a difference between the two, and it's, it's not a knock at Will because Will said years ago his mission was to become the biggest movie star in the world. So he purposely chased and studied Hollywood trends to see what was successful. And I don't knock that because, you know, he's obviously he's Will Smith and he's, you know, one of the biggest movie stars of all time. But to say it's like, you know, he's more versatile than Denzel, I'm like, nah, it's just that he does stuff that he knows is going to succeed. Like, I can never see Will doing a, doing a census in the same token. Yeah, I can never, yeah, I can yeah, never yeah. A, I can never see Denzel doing a hitch or doing voiceover work or something like Shark Cell because that's not his – Rapport, and to go back to Daniel Day-Lewis, I couldn't see him doing, you know, Tropic Thunder the way Tom Cruise did it. But I couldn't see Tom Cruise doing There Will Be Blood because it's a different Yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, 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 no, that's accurate. I cannot, but I think also, I think both of them are very self-aware. Like, like you said, like Will Smith is aware he's a movie star. Denzel, if you, you know, look at some interviews, he doesn't call himself a movie star. He actually kind of looks offended if you call him a movie star. He's like, nah, what, like, what is that? What does that mean? So I think he's very aware that he is an actor, and that's kind of how he approaches things. He's, I don't think he does things because, like, oh, you know, people want to see me do this, so I'm going to do this. Or people, I have an image where I have to be this character. I feel like Denzel does whatever speaks to him. And I think, you know, of course, like I said, no, nothing against Will, because I, I, I love Will Smith. I think, you know, oh, yeah, Fresh, nah. I, I watch Fresh Prince all the time. But I think, so like, Will Smith, he is very conscious of the public wants me to do this, so I'm going to do this, or I'm going to play this role. Like, that's why, like, Bad Boys 3, they're getting ready to do a Bad Boys 4. He knows, like, people love him in that role, so he's going to do that yeah. because he knows that's what puts butts in seats. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, you know, it's, it's not a shot at Will. It's just, it's just one of those things where – you have to look at it from almost a director's standpoint and a filmmaking standpoint, because even if you take it a step further, so like, you know, for the longest time, you know, when Will became Will, he was never part of 
an ensemble cast where he could be outshined. He was always the man in his movies. Like, I'm the center of attention. I'm going to be the man. You're coming to see me. Everyone else is here going to check. Yeah, no, that that is actually that's true. But if you look at Denzel, like Denzel, he's worked with like Gene Hackman, and he's he's worked with you know he's worked with Wesley Snipes, like a lot of people. He's had a lot of uh, powerful co-stars. Tom Hanks, like in Philadelphia, so yeah. And that's Denzel, true. even I mean, even um, as quiet as it's kept, you know, he was supposed to be in the Fast and Furious, the later ones, playing um, Mr. Nobody that Kurt, that Kurt Russell became. Uh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, like, the studio, like, wanted him, and Venom's kind of like, yeah, nah, we're not going to assault that man's intelligence by even offering him this um, offering him this role because I don't think he'll do it, you know. And it's kind of – it's not that it's beneath him, but it's kind of beneath him, you know, because – No, it, it, I mean, it, no offense, it, it is beneath him. Like, this, this was a character yeah. – he doesn't do, like, he's not a blockbuster. He may do movies that become blockbusters because he's in it and his performance stands out, but he's always character-driven. Like, if you look at Fences, Flight, even the stuff he did with Spike, like Mo Better Blues, of course, Malcolm X, like, first, and that's the biggest Oscar snub in the history of the world, but that's another story. But no, a lot of, like, he got game. It's, it's all character-driven. He's, he's very much a character actor. So before we close out, working fans find on social media and is there anything you'd like to add um yes i'm available on social media my instagram name is um c so the letter c the four so it's c the four um honestly the only thing i could add is just like to all you know all the filmmakers everybody out there uh maybe i I guess i'll lean this to somebody that is hasn't done that much right now and is interested um, and becoming a filmmaker, just, you know, have fun. Always, you know, respect your cast and your crew. Treat everyone the way you want to be treated. Never underestimate sound. Like, sound is key. You do not have a movie if you do not have proper sound. And, um, you know, just just don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. And, of course, this is kind of predictable, cliche stuff, but it's important to remember. Never let anybody tell you you can't be a filmmaker, you can't make a movie, can't shoot a feature in six days, seven days, because I've done those things. It's all doable. Have fun with it. And, yeah, that's about it. And just want to thank you again for, you know, for even wanting to hear me and wanting me to be a part of your, your show. So I think, I think it's a great thing what you're doing. So I'm very happy to be a part of it. It's all love, man. Thank you. All right, folks, that was the latest guest on today's edition of the interview, Mr. Clarence Williams IV, no relation to Clarence Williams III. I hope you guys enjoy hearing us uh, fan out over film and just talk and have a conversation. Until the next time, always remember, every gay dream begins with a dreamer. Done. Out.